So before we uh, kind of kick off our midweek series, I think it's only right that we uh, approach God's word in an attitude of prayer and ask him to be our teacher tonight. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that during this Lenten season, we can gather together as a family of faith. We can be here in this place to study your word. And so Lord, as we look again at this incredible story, this Exodus story, we pray that you would speak powerfully and mightily to us that you would grant us wisdom and insight, and that we would ultimately see how this story points us to you. So be our teacher this evening. Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we are entitling this series, uh, The Gospel According to Moses. And in order to give credit where credit is due, part of the reason I wanted to do this series, well, there's really two reasons I wanted to do this series. One is, uh, many years ago, I heard a pastor that I particularly uh, love and enjoy preach uh, a series called The Gospel According to Moses, in which he worked through the book of Exodus. And I was so moved by the whole thing, I was just like, I need to do that at my church. That would just be so much fun to preach through that story. So I'm going to do it not as well as he did it, but uh, hopefully we're still going to learn something as we go through the book of Exodus. But another reason why I wanted us to go through this book during the Lenten season is I feel like it's around this time as we approach Easter that the Ten Commandments movie is always on. Um, or people, or it's always checked out from the library. And that's because Jesus, you know, he, he, the final week of his life before his execution was during the Passover. And many of the things that we see in that final week of life speak back to this story. And so I wanted us to look at this story again and to really understand it because I believe that through this story, we are actually going to gain a deeper understanding of who Jesus himself is. In fact, at one point in Luke's gospel, uh, after Jesus has risen again from the dead, he's walking with two of his disciples, and and they don't actually know that it's him uh, because they think he's dead, and and it says that they were kept from recognizing him. But as they're walking along, you know, they're telling him what happened in Jerusalem and how this this man that they had followed, Jesus of Nazareth, who they thought was the Messiah, had had been crucified uh, and was dead. And Jesus says these words to them, he said, and then he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What I love about this passage is it's basically saying that the Moses story tells the Jesus story. And that's really what we're going to look at as, as we take a look at Exodus. Because Exodus gives us a lens and an insight into not just who God is, but specifically who Jesus is and the kind of ministry that he came to do and the whole purpose and mission of his life. And it's something, and these are things that are really only understood by by going into the story. Um, as a seminarian, I had to learn uh, other languages. I had to learn, you know, Hebrew words and, and, and Greek, and, and we really had to understand these biblical languages. And one of the things that never ceases to amaze me is how every once in a while you come across like a word in, in Greek or in Hebrew that as, although we try to translate it and many translations get pretty darn close, you just can't fully understand the word unless you dwell within the culture and the time frame in which it was spoken. And likewise, we as Christians have many words that we throw around, words like faith and righteousness and salvation. 
And I think that in order to truly understand those words, you have to go back in and dwell in the story that gives those words and fills those words with meaning. And and I would argue that the Exodus story is one of the best places you can go in the Bible to understand the word salvation. Because it's in the Exodus story that we meet the Lord of salvation. It's really why we're going to be dwelling in this story uh, together and why we're going to start that journey tonight. Because it's here in Exodus chapter 1 and the beginnings of Exodus chapter 2 that we actually learn three things about salvation. First, we learn what salvation is. Secondly, we learn who it often comes through. And thirdly, we learn how God brings it about. What salvation is, who it comes through, and how God often brings it about. So before we dive into um, those three things, uh, it's important to set the scene for just a little bit. What brought us to the Exodus story? Well, if you look back in the story of Genesis, what we find is that um, God had made a covenant with Abraham and, uh, and said, you know, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. It was actually one of the clearest statements in the Old Testament that God is going to do something. He's going to bring salvation to the whole world through a family. And the Genesis story follows that family. It follows Abraham and then his son Isaac and then his son Jacob. And at the end of the Genesis story, we learn that Jacob has now 12 sons. And uh, another story, which would be wonderful to preach on at some point, the story of Joseph, is that the 11 of the sons actually end up selling one of the other sons, Joseph, to slit off into slavery in Egypt. But what we learn there is that God blesses Joseph blesses that son. He raises to uh, great heights within Egypt, and then there's this famine that sweeps across the Middle Eastern world, and it's Joseph, through his power and influence and wise planning and prayerful discernment, actually ends up saving the lives, not of just of the people of Egypt, but saving the lives of his own family and the people of the region, because he has stored up food in Egypt so that everybody would be fed. And at the end of that Genesis story, what we see is this beautiful picture of Joseph bringing his brothers who had sold them into slavery, bringing them lovingly to Egypt and watching over them and protecting them to the end of their days. That's how Genesis ends. But we begin Exodus and we find out that this family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has now fallen on hard times. Because as you get into Exodus uh, chapter 1, it says in verse 6, Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. But then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. And so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. This family that had come into Egypt in prosperity and has grown in numbers is now suddenly finds themselves enslaved. And they're actually enslaved for generations. Generation after generation in slavery. I mean, they find themselves oppressed, and it's actually, it's actually right here in, in this very, very dark circumstance that we gain a definition of salvation, what salvation really is. Because it's in these early chapters, uh, sorry, these early verses in chapter 1, that we uh, begin to understand what salvation actually looks like. Salvation, to give you a definition, salvation is rescue from serving anything other than God. 
Salvation is rescue from serving anything other than God. Here's what I mean. There's something interesting that linguists have noted when they've looked at uh, Exodus chapter 1. And it it comes up when actually uh, the narrator of Exodus talks about the slavery that the people are in. If you go on down a little bit further and talks about what they do, this is what it says in verse 14. It says that uh, they, uh, they made the Israelites' lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now, what I find so funny about that translation and almost every other English translation of this verse is that it actually misses something that's abundantly clear in the Hebrew. And that is, is that this verse is insanely redundant because it keeps repeating a single word. That word is a vav. And when you translate it literally, if you give it kind of like a wooden translation, this is what Exodus 1.14 actually says. It says that they made their lives bitter with harsh serving in brick and mortar and with all kinds of serving in the fields, and in their harsh serving, the Egyptians made them serve. See how redundant that sounds? But it's all the same word. But the reason for that is because the author, the narrator of the Exodus story is trying to tell us something about salvation, and that is that salvation is freedom from serving anything other than the Lord because this word avad for service is also the Hebrew word for worship. In fact, if you go a little bit later on in the story, when Moses comes to Pharaoh, when we usually quote the, the Moses story, what is Moses' message to Pharaoh? God says... Let my people go. But that's not actually what it says in Scripture. That's what Charlton Heston says in the Ten Commandments. <laughs> There's something more to what God says, tells Moses to say. He says, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go that they may serve me. It's the same word. And the interesting thing about salvation is salvation is not total freedom. Because the reality is, is no matter what, you are going to serve and worship something. Human beings are actually designed to worship something, to serve something. We all do it. Now, we may not necessarily worship things like the Egyptians did, like idols and things like that, but we constantly are worshiping and serving things that we think are going to provide us with security and significance and purpose. It takes many different forms. We may be serving things like our jobs, thinking that our job gives us security and significance and identity. We may serve a romantic relationship, thinking if I'm in that relationship with that person, I will have uh, security and significance and I will find the love that I long for. We may, we may serve our, our peers, looking for their accolades and their respect, but we all serve Something And the reason we serve that thing is because we think that if we have it, that makes us someone. Service and worship go hand in hand. It's giving our total allegiance and devotion to something that we think is going to provide for us. In fact, it, it makes me think of, a, of a, a Bob Dylan song. It comes from Bob Dylan's album, Slow Train Coming. I love this line. This is basically what Bob Dylan says. He says, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Oh, yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. If Bob Dylan says it, it must be true. (laughs) 
But Bob Dylan is on to something. He actually understands something that Exodus is trying to put its finger on. We will all serve someone. We will all worship someone. But only the Lord, but only the worship of the Lord brings true freedom. Salvation is freedom from serving anything other than God. Every other kind of service, every other kind of worship leads us to slavery, to backbreaking labor in the workplace, to the neglect of our families. to jumping from one romantic relationship to another and never really finding the love that satisfies and lasts. From doing everything that we can to please the people around us and yet always feeling like a phony and a fraud. You see, every other kind of worship demands some kind of sacrifice, some kind of slavery, but it's only the Lord who the worship of truly sets you free because he's the one who made you in his image. He's the one who loves you, made you in love, and desires to help you live the life that you are always called to live. He's the one who desires to set you free from the worship that enslaves you, the service that enslaves you. Right here at the beginning of Exodus, we get a great definition of salvation. Salvation is freedom from serving anything other than the God who made you and the God who loves you. It's the first thing we learn in Exodus chapter 1. Second thing that we learn, though, in Exodus chapter 1 is who God often uses to bring salvation. One of the things that I love about Exodus chapter 1 and the beginnings of chapter 2 is that all the heroes in this story are women. Every single one of them. You have two midwives, uh, Shipra and Pua. This is in verse 15. It says, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names are Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. But the midwives, however, feared God. And they didn't do what the king of Egypt told them to do. They let the boys live. What I find so interesting about these two women in particular, just to pause here on these two individuals, is first and foremost, they're midwives. And in ancient cultures, often midwives were, were midwives because of the fact that they didn't have children of their own to care for. And this is something we actually see a, bit, a little bit later on in this uh, very same chapter because what it says is because these midwives obeyed the Lord and instead of Pharaoh, it says that the, in verse 20, the Lord was kind to them. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. See, these were women who didn't have families of their own, so they, they served as midwives. That's kind of how they made their living. But an unmarried woman in ancient times was... Really, a woman, unless she had some sort of skill like that, really didn't have very much power, didn't have very much authority. The testimony of women was not accepted in the courts of law in the ancient world. And yet here, at the center of the story, the two heroes are these two midwives. But here's the other thing that I find fascinating. We know their names. And here's the reason that's fascinating, because there's another character in the Exodus story whose name we don't know and we never actually find out. Do you know who that is? It's Pharaoh. See, scholars have debated for, for, for decades who was this Pharaoh in Egypt. And the reason they've debated that is because he is never named not once. 
And I think this too is something that the book of Exodus is trying to tell us. This is a significant detail that these two women's name is recorded for all time. And yet this Pharaoh, we have no idea who he is. His name is dead and gone, buried beneath the sands of Egypt. A man who, would have ex- who, who sought to exalt himself, who ruled over one of the mightiest empires in the region, is unknown in the annals of history. We have no idea who this is. And that's because... God often brings salvation through the smallest and weakest of means. God uses small, humble, weak people to accomplish great and awesome works. It's one of the things I just think is so fascinating about this. In fact, and the story gets better because you look at some of the other women who also become heroes in this story, Moses' mother, who, again, doesn't obey Pharaoh, right? She hides her baby boy. And in a very interesting and creative act of civil disobedience, actually does what Pharaoh says. Pharaoh says, I want you to throw your your baby boys into the Nile. She does, but she puts them in a basket first. But furthermore, where does she place him? She places him among the reeds where then Pharaoh's daughter goes to bathe, knowing that he'll be found. And then Pharaoh's daughter, who you might say, well, she's a princess. She must have some sort of power. Not really. Princesses in the ancient world were basically there for one purpose and served one purpose only, and that is so that their fathers could marry them off to some other king so that they could have babies and solidify an alliance. She has no power whatsoever, and she knows by disobeying her dad that this could become a problem. And yet in an act of incredible bravery, she takes the boy as her own. Furthermore, the woman who ends up nursing that boy is his own mom because his sister goes and gets her and introduces the two of them. These incredible women are at the center of this story. We know two of their names. And the only two men that we meet so far in this tale are Pharaoh and Moses. And as uh, Tim Keller, he's the pastor who preached this uh, sermon series I listened to on this set, and I thought this was great. He's just like, yeah, there's only two guys in the beginning of this story. One is wicked and the other is stupid. Pharaoh's wicked, Moses is a hothead who ends up killing somebody. Because you see, Moses thinks that salvation comes by asserting power, by taking things into your own hands. He thought that he was the savior of his people. So then when he sees one of them beating a, uh, being beaten by an Egyptian, he kills that man and commits murder. And then when it's found out, he runs. You see, the real heroes of this story are the weak ones, the overlooked ones, the small ones. And it's often through ways and means and people that the world would look down upon and say they're too small to matter, that God does his most amazing works. Actually makes me think of something that's said in one of my favorite movies, which is The Lord of the Rings. Lady Galadriel meets with uh, Frodo Baggins, this small little hobbit from this corner of Middle Earth called Hobbiton, a place that most other people overlook because the hobbits really don't do anything other than farm and drink ale. 
And suddenly he's tasked with this incredible job, and that is to take this ring of power, the doom of his world, and to destroy it. He suddenly finds himself at the very center of the, of the earth's story, and that he's been given this incredible responsibility to be the one who's going to, to bring an end to the thing that threatens every civilization on the planet. And at one point, he meets the, the queen of the elves, Galadriel, and he's just like, I don't think I can do this. I'm too small. And she says, even the smallest person can change the course of history. God loves to use imperfect people, small people, overlooked people. Which is why if you're sitting here tonight and you're just like, I don't know if God, I don't have any particular set of skills. I don't know if God could ever use me because what I have done. I don't know if there's any greater purpose for my life to bring salvation. You are in, a, you are in good company. For you stand in the company of women like Shipra and Pua. People who by the world standards might have been overlooked and yet God says, trust in me and watch what I can do. So we find out what salvation is. It's, it's rescue from serving anything other than the Lord. We find out who God brings salvation through, often the weak and the humble, that the rest of the world overlooks. But the final thing is we, we find out the circumstances in which God often brings about his salvation. We really see it kind of toward the end of chapter 2. Moses, the would-be savior, has run. He's fled. The guy who, according to the world's standards, would have been in a perfect position to be a savior, educated in the halls of power, given authority as a prince of Egypt. The guy who should be the one to deliver the Hebrews is run away and is now off in the desert. And yet, we read the end of chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Sorry, 23 through 25. It says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. Their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. See, God often begins his salvation work behind the scenes. That even in the midst of dark and dire circumstances, it does not mean that God is absent, but actually he is about to bring about his greater plan. Oftentimes, I think it's tempting as people of faith to get discouraged when life doesn't quite go the way that we think it should. And yet right here, the beginning of the Exodus story, it says that God is not absent, God is not distant, he is intimately aware of what they are suffering, and he is about to do something in the midst of it. It's actually a theme that continues through the whole first part of the book of Exodus because what we find is when Moses does eventually go back, things don't necessarily get better right away. They actually get far, far worse. We'll talk about that in coming weeks. But God is not far away from his people. He hears their cries and responds with deliverance. And so again, if you're here tonight and you're going through a very, very dark season, know that you have not been abandoned by God but that he is present, that he hears your cries and your groaning, and that he can provide for exactly what you need. Three things about salvation in just a short span of time. Salvation, rescue, 
from serving anything other than God? Who does it come through? The humble, the weak, the overlooked. And when does it happen? Often when things seem most dire. Important things to remember. But the story wouldn't mean much if we didn't see one last thing. And that is this, very briefly. Doesn't this story sound a little bit familiar? People dwelling in darkness with no hope. Languishing under back-breaking circumstances, crying out for a savior under a harsh king. Suddenly, a savior is born. Born in humble circumstances among the slaves. Savior needs to then be rescued from the tyrant king who would take his life. He grows up in their midst and returns to deliver his people. Does this story sound familiar? This is Jesus' own story. For the one thing that Exodus tells us is that one day a greater Moses would come that he too would be born among slaves, people enslaved not to some king in Egypt, but enslaved to sin and death, that he would grow up in their midst, that he would walk among them, speak with them, serve them, and lay his life down for them. You see, the Exodus story points to the greater Moses, to the greater Savior, to the one who would indeed come to deliver his people. It speaks of Jesus. And where Moses ran, Jesus did not run. Rather, he set his face toward Jerusalem. In fact, in Luke's own gospel, when it speaks of the disciples standing on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus suddenly is revealed in all his glory, it says that Moses and Elijah appear with him. And it says that they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring about in Jerusalem. But here's the interesting thing. That word for departure in the Greek is actually exodus. They spoke about the exodus that he was about to bring about in Jerusalem. Our Savior was born in our midst to deliver us. To bring us into the promised land, not just of a land flowing with milk and honey, but to bring us into a promised land that would be for all eternity. That's really the gospel according to Moses.